0: Unfortunately, Toby Haydoke is dead, but don't worry, I'm a cyberized version of him continuing his good work. So that's okay, then. Oh, well, it's a beautiful sunny day and well, we can see the river, uh, and I've been invited back to the flat of a lady who's very kindly agreed to talk to me, so I'm going to ask her um, who she is and why I'm talking to her about Doctor Who.
1: OK, my name is Marcia Wheeler, and I worked on three Doctor Who stories, one as an AFM and two as a production manager.
0: Uh, and you've so, you spanned two Doctors, so the first one as an AFM was, was The Wheel in Space for Tristan Devere De Cole.
1: That's right, starring Pat Troughton. And uh, Do you remember Pat Trouton? I do remember Pat Trouton. I liked him, and of all the doctors, I think he was the one who managed to stay the most grounded um, and human. Most of the people who played doctor who eventually sort of went mad if they weren't like Tom Baker and slightly bonkers to start with. <laughs> but he was he was quite grounded, and the one I did as an AFM, he actually went away for a week's holiday during the recording. The story involved him being hit over the head, so he lay unconscious. ...on his bunk in the spaceship for a whole episode... ...while people worried about him... ...and a couple of close-ups were recorded in... ...you know, before he went off on his holiday.
0: That's right, he's missing from episode two... That's it, ...to to, to have a break, yes. Mm. Because you had to do that with your leading men... ...when you were recording Mm. throughout the year.
1: Absolutely. And he had a family as well.
0: Yeah, two, Mm. I think, at that Mm -hmm. point. (laughs) Um And and Tristan De Vere-Cole, it was his only Doctor Who as a director. Was it? Yeah, he's he's worked as a Mm. PA... Uh, prior mm. to that, but he only did he only did the one, mm. uh, and you must have worked with many directors in your in your time. Mm. So how, how did Tristan measure up? Um,
1: Tristan was confident, easygoing. Um, I suspect Doctor Who was slightly slumming for him, <laughs> um, but he approached it you know, very professionally and competently. I seem to remember that one. The biggest problem with it was where we were going to record it. There was some problem going on with studios. And it was planned to be in one studio, and then it had to be planned for somewhere else. And the um, production assistant, then called director's secretary, I think, and the title's constantly changing, Rita, was constantly retyping running orders and information. We kept saying, please, Rita, don't do this. It's all going to change. And eventually... The designer and um, Tristan got so fed up, they just said, oh well, wherever we are, this is what we're going to do. And we ended up in Riverside. um, I can't remember whether we did the whole thing in Riverside or just a couple of episodes. Riverside had just closed and they had to ship all the camera equipment back down there to do it. The pub over the road was known as Riverside 3, with the two studios. And then Riverside 3 was the pub over the road because everybody used to go there to eat.
0: Because the catering was the so... catering bad, was isn't? so terrible. Um, and the cast of Wheel in Space, mm. yes. You've got um, Michael Turner, Eric Flynn, Donald Sumpter.
1: Do
0: mm. uh, you have memories of the of the cast? quite an eclectic I, cast. It's
1: such a long time ago. The one that I do remember was Donald Sumpter because he was playing quite a small part and the main thing he had to do in one episode was periodically shout, fire blue or fire red. And he could never remember the cues. So we worked out a, a system whereby I would flick one finger of one hand and he would shout fire red. And if I flicked the finger of the other hand, he shouted fire blue. And he never did learn the cues. We were still doing this in the studio. But
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it hasn't stopped him from having a great career. No,
1: but well, he's had slightly more interesting parts to play since then, I think. Yes,
0: indeed. And then there's quite a gap between that, the mm. um, late 60s, and the nineteen. 19- it was recorded in '73. Mm. The, the Time Warrior, and you've been mm. promoted. So, so what mm. happened in between, we'll come to The Time Warrior shortly, but what happened in mm. between finishing Wheel in Space and, and starting on The Time Warrior?
1: Um, I did a lot of uh, classic serials, um, which was an area that always interested me, and I ended up back on those as a production associate years later. Um, I did, um, I spent nearly a year doing something called The First Churchills, and I did Sense and Sensibility, I did Bell Ami, um, and then <clears throat> I did various other things. I was on loan to series and did an all-film softly softly. That was an experience. Mm-hmm. And then I trained as a production manager and did um, another all big all-filmed children's serial as a second production manager. Oh, I did a whole load of Z cars. I worked on Z cars as an AFM and as a production manager. And I did some extraordinary stuff, remaking all the children's series episodes from a series called Sinister Street, which had been sold about a year after it had been transmitted. And I don't know whether you you know this, you may want to to get rid of this. Children's stuff tended to be done during the day because of their limited hours on single-ended tape, which was then, because it was cut-edited, into the main tape, so there wasn't a backup. And they'd lost... The transmission tape, or it had been wiped. So they were able to re edit for sales off the backup tapes, but there was no backup tape for the children's stuff. So all the actors and the children came back a year late. The actors were in shock because it was like Groundhog Day, suddenly (laughs) having to do something they'd done a year before. And all the children were slightly bigger, Um, but they were still, you know, very strict rules. And I remember constantly having to say, Stop, you know, the children have got to go off. And the rather elderly director bleating in the gallery, I'm much older and frailer than they are and I don't have to stop for a rest. <laughs> <laughs> so did odd, odds and ends like that. And then I did Owen M.D. and then uh, this Doctor Who. And I think it was the first time I'd had a, a serial, as it were, something with several episodes... All on my own as a production manager, which is probably why I remember it.
0: And that's the Time Warrior, and directed yes. by Alan Bromley, Romney. his first oh. Doctor Who. Yes,
1: I think he just retired from a staff job as a radio producer, something like he certainly,
0: that. Certainly, yeah, because he'd been in, mm. he'd been a producer of Out of the Unknown. Mm. He'd been, it he was a yes. big BBC man, wasn't he? Yes,
1: um, and he, he, one of the entertaining things about him, he had absolutely nothing to lose, and he took absolutely no. Um, stick from John Pertwee at all because John had been in it for a while and was inclined, you know, given a scene to say, well I think I'll do this and and, and Alan would would sit him out through all this and say, no, I think we'll do this and it was like, you know (laughs) the irresistible force meets the immovable object and the immovable object won most of the time I was was interested to watch that Um, because he just, you know, his technique was just to stand there say nothing and then Right, well now we'll do it my way.
0: Because <laughs> a few people have said that he was mm-hmm. um, not a natural fit for Doctor In fact, he came back and did a Doctor years later, from which he resigned, because mm. yeah. he and Tom Baker... Mm.
1: He, wasn't, he wasn't a natural fit. Um, I remember the script was written by Robert Holmes, and it was an allegory of Vietnam. That's what it was meant to be. So it was set in medieval times, with these two opposing barons who lived in nearby castles. And the audience were never going to get this, but one of the barons was supposed to be North Vietnam and the other was South Vietnam. And then the Centarans, were they? Yeah. <clears throat> were the Americans, so they were, you know, coming in from another civilization altogether. And I can only suppose that Doctor Who and his brand new assistant, Elizabeth Jane, who I know is Sladen. Um, were supposed to be some kind of, you know, extraterrestrial United Nations. <laughs> and Alan started off casting, and he asked for suggestions. We didn't have casting directors then, so people in the team would suggest people. And I remember suggesting Donald Pelme, who came in and practically was the character, you know, bumbled in wearing the glasses and so on, after which Alan said, you know what I want, and went home leaving me to do the rest of the casting on my own, which was a bit startling. Um, oh my so goodness. Th- Absolutely. So I cast David Dacre, who I'd known from Salisbury, and an actor called John J. Carney, who I'd known from even further back. And He was actually on a building site when his agent rang him up. And he was perfect. He really looked the part as a, as a medieval thug. And
0: they're a great pair of characters, David Daker and John J. Carney. I they, thought they were they a whale at the time. Yes.
1: Um, I thought they were terrific. They almost deserved their own series. And originally I cast June Watson to play the sort of Queen or Lady Eleanor. Yeah, character, Lady Eleanor. Lady Eleanor. But she had recently had a, a much longed for baby and there was some the baby had a problem and she pulled out. And Barry Letts and I got together and cast June Brown, who um, Played the part. Yeah,
0: that's hitherto mm. two fact. I always wonder why June Watson's never done a Doctor Who because mm. she's, been around, mm. she's been around. She's been around long enough to do it. Yes.
1: Yeah. I, I'd known her in Salisbury. I remember meeting her on a bus going out to East years later, and she was playing a social worker or something like that. And she said, "The NHS has been very good to me in my career." <laughs> 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 he played so many social workers and head nurses and so on. Very good actress. Very good actress. Um, and. But he did other things totally, I mean, when we got onto the location for the technical recce, he'd done a shot list, he never looked at the location, he just pointed at the shot list and said to me, where do I shoot this? And I went, um, uh, how about there? And he had a look, and he more or less put a tick on the shot list when i showed him somewhere to shoot it. It was an extraordinary technique. Mm. Um, and he was very reluctant to, uh, to do an extra shot because there was a moment where a stuntman said, oh, look, you know, I could do this, this fall here off the ladder. And it wasn't on his list and he didn't want to do it. Uh, eventually, we did do it um, and it ended up um, in the piece. In fact, though nobody, you'd never know, it was actually the st- same stuntman died in two consecutive shots. <laughs> uh, but I had a terrible time finding the castle. And I was fairly, being fairly new as a production manager... I kept thinking it was my fault that I couldn't find the perfect location. Eventually, I sat down and thought, no, it's because it doesn't exist. It was meant to be a medieval castle, and there aren't many of those that still look medieval. It had got to be on top of a hill, with trees around it, but also with a moat. Now, on top of a hill and with a moat, it was supposed to have a fully practical drawbridge. Castelcock was about the nearest I found, but it was covered in scaffolding, And I remember having a long conversation with the chap from the Department of the Environment, because it should have been free by then, but we both agreed this was, you know, too risky. And eventually I thought, what about fake castles and follies? Because I did look at various real ones, and they'd mostly got later editions, or they were full of the public, or they were in noisy places. I wasn't getting anywhere. I looked at Max Stoke um, near Coventry, and I looked at, was it Maidstone? where they do religious retreats. And I thought, I had this wonderful idea of signing in the whole of the Doctor Who unit for a religious retreat, during which we would do the filming. (laughs) I thought that'd go down well. But eventually, um, I found in a book of follies a reference to Peckforton in Cheshire. And I went to the BBC library, which was wonderful, and said, could they find me a picture? And they found me um, an article. I think it was in Country Life. And I took one look at it and I've got to, go and see, got to go and see this. So I got hold of the designer and managed to, you know, we managed to go up the following day to see this place because time was ticking by. And it was wonderful because, it, like a lot of Victorian stuff, it had this slightly phony quality, you know, machine-cut stone and so on, which in a way was perfect for Doctor Who. It had this, you know, the slight unreality it was in a way just right. Um, but I had a lot of trouble. It was owned by the Tom Rush estate. And they'd had um, feature film shot there before. And the feature film unit had ex- behaved extremely badly. So they were very reluctant to give permission. And I was actually saved by a panorama crew because the agents who ran this had had a panorama crew in another of their sites who'd behaved impeccably. And so they were prepared to take a chance on another BBC crew. I never found out who they were. But I was profoundly grateful to them for their good behaviour because it got me into Peckforton, which is almost so authentic as to be uninhabitable. But there was an American family living in part of it as a rented flat. And when the designer, Keith Cheatham, and yep. I got onto location, and we were you know, inside, this enormous Irish wolfhound came charging towards us, barking away. Keith promptly hid behind me. <laughs> <laughs> and, I was, and this dog stopped about six feet away and the woman came after it and he was, he was actually perfectly friendly he could not have knocked us both over effortlessly <clears throat> and she said what are you doing and I said you know explain what we were doing this, this had a, a payback later it was in the middle of the filming suddenly a bus full of children appeared absolutely out of nowhere and this woman had organised it through the school And it was her daughter and all her daughter's school friends. The last thing you want in the middle of filming. But being a well-trained Doctor Who production manager, I had got with me the world's largest bag of toffees, which were passed around the children to shut them up during a take. And although they really wanted Doctor Who, we were able to use the actor whose name you reminded me, Kevin?
0: Uh, Kevin Lindsay. Kevin
1: Lindsay kindly acted as a diversion uh, from time to time. Because children used to spring up out of the ground in Doctor Who. <laughs> what you really didn't want was a bus full of them. Um, and it was a, quite a difficult location because there was a long drive, an archway at the bottom, th- through which we could not get any of our big vehicles, So they all ha- including the caterer, so they had to stay outside. And the Tollmarsh Estate had said they didn't want members of the public inside the estate, and we'd said no, no. We wouldn't let members of the public in these state and there were all these children. Um, not good. Anyway, um, so we sorted out the casting, found Peck Fulton, the designer adored it, so that was okay. In fact, several people said we could have shot the entire four episodes there, and we could have done, but we wouldn't have had the money. No. Uh, we had four days of filming, um, and it was considered, you know. Um, quite exceptional that we were that far away from London
0: anyway. yes it's very, it's very unusual mm. in fact it's one of the stories mm. that um, a, a lot of the walk-on actors mm. went on to be actors based in the North West who I've known or well, we you know, got, Ray Dunn uh, Bobbins ex- in it and he was ex- in Brookside the extras
1: know. came from Manchester Yeah,
0: Andy Abraham mm. who I've worked mm. with at Royal Exchange yeah. one of
1: them I'm sorry I can't remember his name this far back had actually played the lead in a Wednesday play and he came on to us because he was, he was a skilled um, bowman and uh, I was astonished that, you know, he would, having played, you know, a major part, he would come along and be a special skills extra on the Doctor Who. But he seemed quite happy about it, I think, because he could yeah, use this other skill. They were very nice. <clears throat> I do remember that uh, we had a hell of a lot of filming to do. There were fights. There were all sorts of things. And the, uh, I remember that one of the scene crews said to me, he would thought of complaining until he saw the lighting cameraman, Max Summit, actually running from one set up to the next. What I remember, the horror, the real horror, which I have never forgotten, one of my worst moments as a production manager. I arrived on site very early. The prop van arrived. I said, okay, unpack. We need the <clears throat> the telephone box for the first shot. There should be a tractor and a trailer coming to take it up to the location because you can't take it up on the lorry. And they unpacked the lorry. Guess what wasn't in it? The telephone box. It was still in London. And a whole intricately planned day of filming fell apart in front of my eyes because I thought we could do this sequence while they put the spaceship together because it had arrived in bits and people could also practise on the horses which they were meeting for the first time. All of that. And also everybody was going to come out in the wrong clothes. And I remember turning to the designer and saying, how fast can you put the spaceship together? And he said, oh, three quarters of an hour." And I said do, do it, you know, because we were obviously going to have to start with that, and sent somebody else to ring up London and get the wretched phone box sent up separately. Um, I think we ended up shooting at the end of the following afternoon, but it was one of those nightmare moments uh, where you think, oh my God, (laughs) because it was all so tightly scheduled. And the next nightmare moment, apart from when Alan Bromley and Co arrived and discovered we couldn't start off as planned, because as you can probably have gathered from what I was saying, he was very much an as planned sort of guy, mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, it was the next morning, I rang up um, Ealing to ask, you know, if the rushes were okay, and they said, oh... The, uh, yeah, they were okay, except for the first shot, which wasn't any good. And I thought, oh, the spaceship, which by this time had been dismantled and put away. And when the camera crew arrived, I said, Ealing, you know, said the first shot wasn't any good. Oh, they said, that's all right. We just took a chance on taking a long shot of the castle on the way. <laughs>
0: oh, so it wasn't that shot. <laughs> it
1: wasn't that shot. No, because I didn't, didn't know, you know, I don't think they'd even put a, a clapper on it. So, you no, know, it had some uh, rocky moments. The other thing... Was, and I don't know whether this is a story anybody else would care about, but it's always stayed with me. And the, the very first morning when the Sparks arrived, they were complaining, you know, that they'd had to get out and leave so early they hadn't had breakfast. And in fact, I hadn't had breakfast either because I got out of the hotel and rushed out to see the pop van and get the telephone box set up, <laughs> which didn't happen. And we weren't having it. Was this was Doctor Who? No money for. You know, breakfast on location, the first thing when people were going to have was a coffee break. So I said to the Sparks, look, I'll talk to the caterers, and if they can do you a few bacon butties, you know, I'll get them sent up, you know, quietly, but you mustn't let anybody else see you having them. And, you know, time went by, and all these, this was going, it was very busy, and there was just me, there was no location manager, it was just me and an AFM. Um, and a production assistant. I don't think I stood beside the camera once on that shoot. I was always setting up the thing in front, you know, the next the next shot mm-hmm. in line. So Alan must have had to say his own action and cut. And uh, about th- third day, the Wednesday, we were all having drinks in the in the pub in the evening, and the Sparks had put on their best clothes and their aftershave, and they were all drinking whatever they drank. And they pull, pulled me over and offered me a drink. And they said, we've got a confession to make to you. And I said, oh, what? And they said, that first morning when we came and we told you we hadn't had any breakfast, it was a wind-up. You know. And they had expected me to say, <laughs> off, and then they could have grumbled and moaned and behaved badly. The last thing they had expected was that I would organise breakfast. <laughs> they did come up, and I told them about it. They all, you know, all went, you know, trekked off to the van. And they felt so bad about this. <laughs> The thing was, they felt bad about it. they. I didn't hear a squeak out of the sparks for the whole of the rest of the shoot. They behaved impeccably. They didn't complain about how much work they were doing or anything. So, and I thought it was quite sweet of them to tell me yes, after, they, the thir- after the third day.
0: They came clean. They
1: came clean. Yes, <laughs> um, and the funny thing was that I'd had this. I'd been to a, a board for a permanency um, just before I came out on this shoot, in which Chris Morahan who clearly thought, you know, a little blonde lady looked quite inadequate as a production manager, had gone on and on at me about what I would do, you know, if sparks were difficult and complained and so on. And I'd, I knew what he wanted me to say, you know, that I would shout at them, which wasn't really my style. And so when he said, you know, what would you do if the sparks did this or complained or the scene, I said I'd find out, you know, whether their complaint, you know, was valid or not, and do something about it, which wasn't the answer he wanted. But it was the answer he was going to get from me, and I thought, you know, I wish this had happened before that board because I could have told him this this story that being kind to the sparks actually pays off. You know, because if I told them, I don't care if you had breakfast or not, they would have they would have behaved badly for the next couple of days. I'm sure of it. Yeah, yeah. So that was a memory. Then we got into the studio. And that was sort of okay, except we nearly set fire to David Dacre. I can't remember what it was now. Some, something that must have been the Donald Palmier car. some experiment that, that was set off, and sparks came flying out of it. And, and David, to do him credit, he lay there on the floor. Until you know the take was over, and only then leapt up, shrieking and swearing about being having. I can't remember. Yeah, because he's been
0: killed, and and, and 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 the spaceship's taking off.
1: That's it. Uh, must have been that. Uh, yeah. And
0: and Jeremy Bullock kills Kevin Lindsay, yes. so the spaceship blows up. Yes. But David Dake is dead, so that's he can't it. move and is no, in the straw. That's it.
1: Absolutely. Guessing. Well, he was in the straw, smouldering. <laughs> <laughs> With a f-
0: false beard on as well. Exactly. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> so there was all of that. Um,
0: is he fun, David Dake? Oh, he seems like yes. a laugh.
1: Yes, he started off as a stage manager. He was the stage manager, not immediately before me at Salisbury, but the one before. And people used to were still telling me stories about the flats falling over when he was the stage manager. But he tried. He was allowed to try out as an actor. He was never trained. He was an instinctive actor, and he gradually developed some technique because he was in. He was still incredibly nervous. Um, in. In his theatre acting, when I was there, um, he used to stand... Some, some other actor who did yoga or something had told him he should stand on his head um, before you know, performing, because it would calm him down. she would go in and do a call, and he'd be standing on his head. I can tell you some stories about David Dacre, but um, probably better not.
0: When well, we switch the recorder off. Switch the recorder <laughs> off, and I'll
1: tell you a very funny story. Yeah,
0: that's just for me at this perk of the job, yes. listeners. Um,
1: the next memorable thing... About um, that Doctor, Who. because I was young and keen, I went used to go to all the editing sessions if I could, because you learn a lot about you know what could have been done better or what went wrong or why things happened. And so I used to dutifully go if I possibly could, and I went to all the editing of this four-part Doctor Who with Alan Romlins just as well, because after the editing he vanished, and I ended up having to do the dub. Um, and dubbing Doctor Who is quite a performance because it, it's very much dependent on sound effects and music and bits and pieces. But all the way through the recording, Alan had actually been doing sound effects and saying, "In here there'll be this noise like this, you know, explaining it to the editor. And fortunately, I'd remembered a lot of this. And when we got into the dubbing, there I was suddenly, you know, pretending to be the director. And I was barely confident as a production manager. And I can't remember, there was a recurrent noise...
0: Um, the, the TARDIS taking off? No, it or? wasn't
1: the TARDIS. That was fairly well established. It must have been something to do with the space thing. And anyway, they produced a noise. And I thought, no, I don't think Alan would like this. So I said, no, I don't think that's quite right. And no other noise thing. And they produced something else. And I said, no, I don't think that's quite right either. And they then rushed out of the room and came back with a suitcase and I thought, gosh, I've upset them they're going to pack their toothbrush and leave <laughs> and they said of which they opened it up and it must have been some early kind of technical gizmo a synthesiser of some sort and they plugged some pegs in and produced this noise and I said, yes, yes, that's it And I thought, oh, now I understand why directors sit there saying no, because sooner or later somebody will produce something better.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm guessing that was probably the gun sound for Lynx's gun then, because that's used quite a lot when he he shoots it a lot.
1: I I can't remember, I just remember this thing of sitting there in dubbing and bravely saying, no, I don't think that's quite right. And of course, that time you used to have to do quite long sessions of dubbing and then stop, because there had to be a sort of physical edit in order to do the dub back this was before the days of cipher dubbing mm. and one ended up in the middle of the night doing the dub back down in VT there were very long exhausting sessions um, so I was, I was more than grateful that I'd done my homework sitting in the, recording, the editing sessions um, but that's, that's my, I think about my only other memory of that oh and the fact that Liz Slayton was new and I remember saying to her You may find some production managers start shouting in the studio. Pay no attention. Whatever it is, it is not your fault. Even if they're shouting at you, don't let it get to you. And I met her sometime later and she said the next one she did was absolutely fine. She'd wondered what I'd been going on about. And the one after that, she said the production manager was behaving exactly as I'd said and there was a lot of shouting and stuff going on. And she said if that had happened to her the first time she'd done it, because she'd done very little television before mm. that, she said she really didn't think she could have she could have survived. She said, by the time it happened, it was sort of all right. But she was glad that I'd warned her anyway. Um, because people did have a lot of different styles. Mm. And some of the styles of floor managing were very militaristic and dominating and shouting. Um, so that was the other thing I remember, was trying to warn Liz that other people might behave in different ways, because I was very conscious that she was new and a bit nervous and needed some support. And I used to try to explain to her, you know, what was happening and why it was happening.
0: There's more from Marcia. I have to say, I spent a long time with her. She was brilliant. Uh, I mean, the level of detail and recall, um, I'm sure you'll agree, the next part of this interview uh, promises to be fascinating. Uh, her charity uh, is uh, the Alzheimer's Society, which is www.alzheimer's.org.uk. Uh, there'll be a part to soonish, for the next one let's get another thespian on board who worked in front of the camera on Doctor Who and has since worked behind the camera on a number of television programmes and he's a good fun feisty individual that's in the next Toby Haydox Who's Round, Uh, until that though uh, keep being nice to people and goodbye I thought two things about television, I thought it was amazing wonderful, magical and important Uh, (laughs) And I then subsequently dedicated my life to television. And the tragedy for me personally has been that by the time I got to actually
1: make it, it wasn't worth it anymore.
2: Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who? The Romance of Crime. Hmm. Carbonaceous asteroid, I'd say. Traces of refractories. Accelerated decay of aluminium twenty-six, etc.
1: We're on the fringe of a simulated gravity field. I'd say they're using remote gravitic excitation.
0: Wilkin, I've found Carl. Carl, it's not pretty. He's been (laughs) flattened.
1: Duralinium. So possibly an Earth colony
2: on an asteroid. Strange choice. Well. We won't know unless we get inside.
1: No! You are prison! Follow me. Do not attempt to communicate. Any attempt to escape will result in immediate execution.
2: Yes, it usually does. All
1: right. The controls aren't responding! The engines must have been interfered with. And we shall impact the planet's surface at terminal velocity. You must save us, Doctor! What
2: do you think I'm trying to do? What?
0: No! Stay back! No!
2: Sorry. More stairs, K9.
1: Don't worry. I can carry you.
2: Really? Wouldn't it be better to carry K9? I think you might struggle with me. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who. The English Way of Death. <laughs> oh. oh, Percy, sweet one. Your tales are marvellous, but I wonder how much seasoning you add to the pot. Uh, Harrier, the tale is in the telling. Is anything wrong? Oh, just the narrow fussing aspect. I'll turn it off. What the place is, is that? That closed chair? Sir, up? The, the noise
1: hurts. Stay down, man that?
2: Nothing important.
1: According to these readings, that's a transmission on a spatio-temporal frequency.
2: Oh, interesting.
1: Nobody in this time period can have receivers operating on extratemporaneous wavelengths. Oh, what's happening? Uh, I'm terribly
2: sorry, young lady. I very nearly ran into you.
1: <laughs> I fell into the road. I blame the local seismic activity. Mr Stackhouse... The construction of the first
2: project proceeds satisfactorily. And the second? Work on the cerebral links continue. More nourishment is needed.
0: Miss Alostro? Yeah. Take a look through this on the picture page. There must be no errors.
1: He appears rather distinctive, especially if he wears that hat
0: you are percy you naughty boy no this is against
2: the rules harriet i'll have to destroy
0: it one fiddling flying box june
2: 1930 southern england
0: minor tremor noted at 1747
1: hours today
2: it must have been caused by somebody or something alien to this time continuum
1: what the hell you you're coming with me keep back I don't want to have to kill you. Well, then.
2: You have completed your examination.
1: (laughs) But you can't be serious. You can't want it
2: to actually destroy the world. Big finish. We love stories.